Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe, and this is Speaking of Race. Uh, You know, guys, I've been thinking about this lately. We have been talking about science and race now for like how many years? Many. (laughs) Many years, right? And I mean, the thing most people think about when they hear the word race is skin color. And yet we've really never given it like proper speaking of race treatment. I, I, I think you're right. So let's do it. Can we do that? Well, yeah, but not just today. We're going to have to do this in at least two episodes to try and take apart this massive history of science and human pigmentation. I guess that's true. And let me guess, you anthropologists want me to start here. Back when our ancestors had to shed their furry coats and skin became exposed for everything else to see. Is that how far back we're going? Well, yeah, maybe, but but not today. For today's okay. episode, let's let's just ease you history types into it very <laughs> easily. We're we're going to start by looking at the history of how people have understood and assigned meaning to the differences that we see in skin color. Okay. And we'll do that by starting with some of the early evidence we have of the notices being taken of those differences. Oh, great. Well, hopefully people have a long car trip planned or something, because that's actually going to take a while. Our earliest historical evidence of people just that we know noticed skin color differences comes, as we shouldn't be surprised, from art and literature in the areas of the oldest civilizations. We see it in Egypt and India and Greece, among other places. That makes sense. We can't say too much about what Egyptians thought caused skin color because we don't have any historical records to go on there. But we can say something about how they depicted it. There's archaeological evidence from inside Egyptian tombs representing different human skin colors that go all the way back to the early dynastic period, almost 5,000 years ago. But the most famous or infamous representation of human race in the ancient world comes from the so-called Book of Gates or the Book of Pylons panel inside the 3,000-year-old New Kingdom tomb of Seti I, which was first seen by Europeans in the early 1800s. Oh, yeah. This is one we've talked about before on the podcast, if I remember. This is the one the 19th century Europeans tried to make more out of a skin color issue than was really there in the first place, right? Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like that. It was Heinrich Menu von Minatoli in around the 1810s. And that continued really all the way until Alabama's own Josiah Clark Knott in the 1850s. They distorted all these images. They took what were essentially ritual renderings from inside of the pyramids of four differently dressed, and they were differently colored groups of people. But these guys turned it into that canonical four races of humans. Which I imagine must have been a bit of a problem that they only had the four because Blumenbach and other Germans had also said it was five races of humankind right around this time, right? Yeah, I mean, that that is true. They did think that the Europeans had written that there were five races of man. But weirdly, that discrepancy actually helped the case of von Minatoli all the way through not. <laughs> because they already believed that the ancients wouldn't have even known about the fifth quote-unquote race, meaning all of the aboriginal Americans. But, you know, the the problem with these hieroglyphics is that when actually translated, those four groups inside the Book of Gates really come out as Libyan, so the Egyptian word for that was Themehu, or Nubian, 
which is Nehesu, or Asiatic, which is Aamu, or Egyptian, which is Rit. And we just don't have any idea whether those actual terms are supposed to mean some sort of racial grouping. Right. And there was also the fact that there was a lot of variability from one place to another with how skin colors were being represented, even just in ancient Egypt, right? Yeah, there was. For instance, if you look at different artistic depictions of the boy king, Tutankhamun, different artists portrayed him having black, brown, or reddish skin. So Mm -hmm. same guy, different color. What does that mean? Right. So maybe we could say like, okay, it looks like people were aware of differences in skin tone, but weren't very consistent about how they showed those differences or how they applied them or maybe what it meant or why it mattered. As much as I understand, that is probably the right way to set this up. Really, the divisions were between insiders and outsiders, like at all times in human history. And that was regardless of skin color. So often these differences between insiders and outsiders were really based on things like religion or language, or frankly, what we might call ethnicity, like lines of descent, familial connections, but not necessarily skin color. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and a lot of that we also see in ancient Greece. They have some timing that overlaps with the Egyptian dynasties. And Greece is especially important for our story of skin color and race because European Enlightenment scholars looked on ancient Greece as the perfect society. Yeah. And so the philosophers and the naturalists were inspired by Greek and Roman scholars, and they end up using the term that the ancient Greeks used, the term Ethiopian. Hmm. Scientists like Blumenbach and others use that to refer to dark-skinned individuals, and ultimately it comes to represent Africans. This is seen earliest in Homer, Hmm. where he uses the term in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, without saying anything about what these folks look like. So we don't know if he's making a reference to skin color, but the term translates from the ancient Greek as a burnt face or burnt skin. So this is generally interpreted to mean dark-skinned people. But weirdly, and this, this has always bothered me, then there was no sense of a continent of Africa. The ancient Greeks did not call that land Africa. The Greek territory of Africa was really confined to a small sliver of what we might call Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia and Libya, the south coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but not including Egypt. The land south of that sliver of land was actually called Libya. Now, according to the African-American classicist Frank Snowden, when he was writing just after World War II, According to him, this Ethiopian type south of the Nile River Valley were, according to the Greeks anyway, and I'm going to quote from him here, they had flat noses, woolly hair, integument, rich in pigment. These were, to Greek, the outstanding physical features of this Ethiopian type. And of these features, it is apparent that the color of the skin was uppermost in the mind of the Greek. By far the most common words which the Greek used in these passages to designate the color of the Ethiopian skin was black. Again, this is according to Snowden, but this is not until 1948. Okay. Okay. So it seems like what people are saying here is like this this term Ethiopian is coming to be associated not with nationality per se, but with darker skin color in these ancient Greek sources. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's it, Joe. But I think the point here is that these early encounters between the different groups set the stage for the later racializing of skin color. And we'll get to that later on. But for now, we should point out that the ancient Greeks and Romans provide a very early set of explanations of why different skin colors exist. And we should insert into this Roman poetry, especially Ovid. <laughs> why not? I know. Yeah. I know. Right? <clears throat> so Ovid actually reinterprets the Greek myth of Phaethon. He loses control of the sun god's chariot. And this comes in Ovid to be an explanation for skin color, but it also shapes the geography of sub-Saharan Africa, what we would call sub-Saharan Africa, because again, the Greeks called it Libya. So when Phaethon loses control of the chariot, it gets too close to the earth. And apparently this makes blood rush to the surface of the skin of Ethiopians, and that's what makes the skin color dark. At the same time, the scorching burns off vegetation and turns much of that continent of Libya into a desert. Okay, so that was Ovid. And also there is the Greek physician Hippocrates who came up with the four humors, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And he explained illnesses as the imbalance of these humors. And did he have something to say about skin color with the humors too? I mean, Hippocrates, if it was one person, and that's still up for debate, we're not sure if the Hippocrateans actually did tie humors to skin color, but you're definitely right that over time, this Hippocratean humoral theory led others to surmise that if you had an excess of one of the biles, that that might, uh, might be able to explain what's going on with skin color. So for instance, in the ninth century, we have the, the Persian Muslim scholar Al-Tabari, who basically says... Skin color is as a result of the humors. So here's a quote. The colorings of the body correspond with which gained the ascendancy over the body and which of the four humors went to the surface in the development of the fetus. I like that developmental explanation. And then he says, (laughs) when in anyone the light bile predominates, he becomes light skinned. When the dark bile predominates, he becomes dark skinned. So there is probably the most complete classical version of this explanation. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that. There was a totally different one circulating about this time too, and that is about the curse that Noah put on Ham's son Canaan. Yes, in chapter 9 of Genesis of the Bible, and that's been used to explain why Africans are dark-skinned and why they have to be held in slavery. And weirdly and disturbingly, like if you actually read Genesis 9, it says nothing about skin color at all. And in fact, I mean, the most ancient Talmudic Hebrew interpretations suggest that this entire chapter really has to do with circumcision, not skin color at all. But (laughs) yeah, I know it's insane how over time it morphs from that to being something to do with skin color. We see, for instance, by the 8th century, there's a Spanish translation of a Midrashic source that brings skin color into the whole description of chapter 9 by saying this about Noah's sons. Shem was dark but comely, Mm. Ham was dark like the raven, and Japhet was entirely white. That's the first place I can actually see the Noachian curse being tied directly to the skin colors. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, and I know that becomes even more important later on in the 
in the 19th century. We're going to come back to that. But for the moment, I'm noticing that none of these early explanations are really proposing like a what we might call a mechanism of skin pigmentation. That's you know, true. I mean, the humor yeah. explanation is maybe as close as we get, but there seems to be no real discussion going on here of what's happening within the skin, mm-hmm. you know, to make the skin actually different colors. Even if some of these guys are speculating like really broadly about mm-hmm. mechanisms like bringing the blood to the surface of the skin. Yeah, that, that's right, Joe. It's it's not until the Enlightenment, really, that we see physiological explanations being proposed for what's actually in the body producing the different skin tones. And as a sidelight, I would like to encourage everyone to go back and listen to our 50-part series on Race <laughs> in the Enlightenment. It felt long, but I don't think it was 50 parts. It was like only 23. It, it felt like it, but, but seriously. That's a good plug. I love how you're always plugging our prior episodes, <laughs> But seriously, the Enlightenment is when we see skin color become inextricably tied to the newly blossoming concept of race. So we get race and skin color. Yeah, I want to underline that. I think that's an important point, Jim, because if we're thinking about the, the long range view of how skin color came to play such an important role in how we assign races today, yeah. the historical timeline looks like the focus on skin color grew alongside of chattel slavery using black bodies, as slavery became an ever more important part of the European economic system. As I think we've mentioned before on this podcast, actually, it's really the conjunction of Protestantism and human slavery spreading hand in glove across the globe. As this happens, racial superiority and inferiority based on superficial traits like skin color was used as a post hoc justification for how Protestants and the secular enlightenment figures who preached things like all men are created equal, how they could also build an entire multinational economic system based on dehumanizing and torturing people, which was what was required to keep slavery going. Yeah, that's that's very true. The first time we see, and we've talked about this before in our Enlightenment series, the first time we see race used in close to a modern sense is by Francois Bernier in 1684. And in that, he's only describing two real colors of humans. He considers Asians and Americans and Europeans to all have white skin that's being affected by different climates. And then Africans he sees as having black skins. Well, that's interesting that he's focused on just white and black categories. I mean, that's not all that different from what we see today in the U.S. with our binary racial system that's mostly still at work. Yeah, except that a lot of the people that he classified as white wouldn't be accepted by modern white supremacists as white. Yeah, fair. You know, this does make me think about the origins of the sort of cultural value on the white as in white the color as a sign of sort of like purity and goodness and Mm -hmm. black the color as being indicative of evil or dirt or badness, which Uh, is mm kind of like the master narrative that underlies anti-black racism all over the world. Um, You know, I recently read this interesting article by an art historian actually named Anne LaFont. And she's looking at how enlightenment artwork contributed to the racialization of skin color around this time. So that's the connection I'm trying to make here. And she starts off talking about the famous art theorist from this time, Claude Henry Watelet. He's the guy who declared that the color white being representative of light and reflecting the full spectrum of light, according to Newton's theory, was the 
patron color of the Enlightenment, the color of righteous struggle to attain human perfection. I think this is like a really important moment here. So the author, she then goes on to talk about this particular portrait of the Duchess of Portsmouth, and she's depicted next to a young black page. And she uses this example to talk about how art at this time so clearly illustrates and reinforces and some might even say perpetuates the colonial hierarchy of the sort of light-skinned mm. master and the dark-skinned slave. And she oh. ends up taking the analysis right up through interpretations by Thomas Jefferson to talk about how enlightenment art was used to reinforce the ties that were already emerging here between skin color, race, beauty, oh. hierarchy, and this like yeah. white is good, black is bad. All of which is just to say that it's during this period that we start to see real evidence of hierarchy developing where whiter skin is gooder and blacker skin is badder. In other words, Mm. the historical origins of modern racism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Super important. And it's also important to point out here that even after slavery ends, there's no change at all to that racial hierarchy based on skin color. Yeah. You know, politicians seem to be okay with the old canard that like slavery is America's original sin because it helps with the argument that once slavery was ended, the responsibility of white folks to make the world more just and equitable was fulfilled, like it was done. But, But those hierarchies based on skin color emerged from abolition in the 18th and 19th centuries, totally intact. Like, Yeah, absolutely. And supported by a full scientific apparatus built around racial typologies that indeed do involve more than black and white. So for instance, 1735, your friend and mine, Carl Linnaeus, <laughs> when he writes the Systema Natura in his attempt to classify everything, all plants, all animals, all minerals, he's the one who actually c- cements that association between four continentally based racial groups and skin colors. Yeah, it's possible that it's because of Linnaeus, who we still learn about as early as middle school, right? that we have this four-part division of red Americans, white Europeans, black Africans, and brown Asians to tie to race. By 1758, in the 10th edition of Sistema, he changed his mind about the skin color of Asians, adopting a Latin term for yellow. And that's the term then that stays with that race right through the 21st century. Good old Linnaeus. Yeah. Yeah. As usual, we've got him to blame for a bunch of bullshittery. That's not (laughs) the first time we've dealt with that on the podcast. Exactly. But it's also worth pointing out that not everyone at this time was using that sort of one race, one color model, right? That's true. No, models at that point were all over the map. In 1775, the Scottish surgeon John Hunter, who we've also talked about in one of our Enlightenment maxi-series episodes. The Irish Giant. Episode 3 of 50 came up with (laughs) seven color divisions of humans. But these were color divisions. These were not racial or continental divisions. He didn't tie a color to a race or a group. He instead had many different groups of people in each of the different colors. Hmm. Okay, so it seems like there is maybe a little bit of breaking away from the Linnaean model there with Hunter. But what about like the whole century before Linnaeus when people were first starting to use microscopes and seeing hmm. that the picture was more complicated than the humoral explanation? Eric, you're, you're a historian of science. Have you ever heard of Marcello Malpighi? Um, yeah, he was uh, he was one of those early microscope guys. So I guess right around the time as Antoine von Leeuwenhoek and Robert Hooke and Newton, like in the 1600s. Yes. That's right. Well done. Okay. Plus. 
You have to keep your job. <laughs> okay, I keep my job. All right. Okay. Good. Okay. So, so Mal Piggy, I'm I'm mentioning him because he has lots of anatomical features that are named after him, including the bottom two layers of the skin. So, the stratum basale, which is the bottom layer, contains melanocytes, which are the cells that actually generate the melanin pigments that make our skin the color that it is. Okay. And if you combine that with the next layer up, the stratum spinosum, these form the Malpighian layer of the skin. Okay. And that's named in his honor because in his microscopic anatomy work, which was published in 1665, really early, he describes what he calls the mucus sheath, ew, uh. which we now call the Malpighian layer, which is under the skin. So he finds that the outer layer of the skin is colorless in both darker skinned and lighter skinned people. So he mm. concludes that there must be some kind of substance located in those bottom skin layers that makes skin the color that it is. He calls this thing, this substance, are you ready for this? Mm -hmm. He calls it a mucus liquor. <laughs> mm, I think I drank some mucus liquor last night. <laughs> so gross. Not as good as the scotch you got me. That's true. Well, good. Not mucus scotch. That's good. <laughs> the, the next century after Malpiggy's discoveries people were trying to search for what that substance actually was. And it wasn't until a French surgeon, Claude Nicolas Lacotte, studying frog nerve cells. Okay, mm -hmm. guys, frog oh, nerve cells. That's where we actually find it. Huh. Found a pigment he called ethiopes, which we now call melanin. Huh. It was the discovery of this pigment that led him to assume that it must be what causes skin color in humans. And in his 1765 Treatise on the color of human skin in general, on that of Negroes in particular, and on the metamorphosis of one of these colors into the other, either from birth or accidentally. And yeah. I dare you to try saying that three times. Man, they now. really could write the titles back oh. then. <laughs> That's the whole dissertation right there. <laughs> he argued that his discovery disproved the explanation of bile as a source of skin color. He also believed that there was an association between the pigment and the environment, noting that Dark-skinned people had a greater amount of pigment than light. That's weird because Leiden in the Netherlands and Amsterdam, those are two of the big medical places at the time. And, and yeah. right around that same time, there was a Dutch anatomist named Bernard Siegfried Albinus. And Albinus still was asserting that black bile was the source of dark skin color. That, that humoral theory hadn't died even in the sort of headquarters yeah. of medicine in Europe. But, but I think Johann Blumenbach, that's the guy whose race categories shaped much of 19th and even 20th century race science. Blumenbach still favored a more complicated explanation. It was still based on bile substances, but he thought that those interacted with carbon and there was some sort of an environmental mixture that affected the liver function. And so that a little bit more anatomically complicated reaction is what ended up producing skin tones. So it's a little bit better, I guess, maybe. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. But the humoral explanation finally begins to fall away about a century after Cott first describes his Ethiopes pigment. The English physician and anthropologist James Hunt picks up again mm. on the, the Malpighian layer idea, noting that the layer is no different in blacks than in whites. Importantly, though, he shows that the pigment occurs in granules that are widely distributed in the upper part of this, the, the stratum uh, spinosum, the upper part of the Malpighian layer. James Hunt was a bad dude, though. 
Well, that's actually a fairly accurate assessment of how skin gets its colors. We use different terms today, and we focus more on the cells that actually produce those granules, the melanocytes, which are in the bottom layer or the stratum basale of the skin. Hmm. But that's pretty close. Yeah, no, the anatomy was pretty well nailed down by the 1860s. Which again, underscores the degree to which this value that's placed on lighter skin than on darker skin can persist unchanged well after formal slavery is over. I mean, James Hunt was one of the promoters of the hierarchy, even yeah. if he got his science right. Yeah. So yeah. there's that. Yeah, you both and maybe some of our listeners know that I've spent some time thinking about how colonialism in India was tied in with race and the history of race because they were yeah. trying to figure out how to fit Indian castes into the global story of race and its distribution around the world, right? Yeah. This was like a huge preoccupation for them, yeah. both in India and in other colonies, this big question of like the peopling of the world and how people of different appearances and skin tones came to populate different parts of the world. And and we really haven't gotten to that big question yet in today's episode. So that's true. Like what were people saying, not just about anatomy of skin color here at this time, but also about how it got distributed around the world? Huh. Well, we we talked a little bit about some of these explanations, like the Phaethon myth, which was one of the earliest explanations about how the Ethiopians came to be darker than in other places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's true. Mythological explanations like that had to be dealt with before we could even think about something like a, a secular scientific definition. So I think for that, the beginnings of that, we can find in the English polymath Thomas Brown. So in 1646... He's the one who actually begins to argue against the Greek mythology that the Romans also carried forth of, of Phaethon, you know, bringing the sun too close to Ethiopia mm. as the cause of dark skin color. So Thomas Brown explains that skin color is actually transmitted from generation to generation, regardless of the sun. So that sounds a little bit more modern. He thought it was a kind of inheritance mechanism that caused skin color, though, of course, he doesn't say anything about genetics. He doesn't understand how any of this stuff would work at the time. And he publishes this in 1646 in book six called the, of the blackness of Negroes. So it's a kind of racial essentialist argument being built right there. Mm. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it is true that inheritance is in fact part of how we get our skin colors. So maybe he's moving things along there a little bit. It is, but by trying to demythologize the issue, he's basically saying that the sun played no role in skin color, and we know that's not true. We know that the right. sun has a huge role to play in the distribution of skin colors. Mm -hmm. So he was closer to the truth than some of his contemporaries who were still making the Noah argument or oh. or the or buying into the uh, Greek mythology, but that Noah curse argument is one that played a very big role, particularly in the American School of Anthropology throughout yeah. much of the 19th century. Yeah. Mm -hmm. After Brown does his debunking, the British physician John Mitchell also helped to push aside some of the mythical explanations of skin color. He offered an explanation in his 1744 report to the Royal Society on causes of skin color in different climates. He debunked a number of the previous mythical explanations, and then he sets the stage for more modern interpretations to come by arguing for aspects of the, both the natural and cultural environment 
which in fact turns out to be true later on uh-huh. as the shapers of skin color. He's talking about the power of the sun's heat, the nature of the soil and ways of life as uh-huh. shaping skin colors. But it's, that's it's, pretty modern. Right. Yeah. yeah. As important as these British physicians were, really all scientific roads stopped <laughs> at the door of Georges Leclerc Comte de Buffon in Paris, mm-hmm. the, the head of the Garden of the King and one of the major scientific figures of the, of the 18th century. We've talked about him before. He's the one who tries to write an entire natural history, many, many, many volumes of the, from the beginning of their world until now or whatever. And Buffon says that the different skin colors really are adaptations to environments. Although, you know, he doesn't know the mechanisms any better than anyone else. So it gets a little weird when he's talking about how different things adapt to different environments. But it's super important that Buffon notes that skin color is a noticeable difference between groups and that heat is the primary cause of skin color differences. So extreme heat would cause darker skin, temperate climates would allow for lighter colored skin. But again, if you have extreme cold, then you get darker skin again, which is why you can go from a sub-Saharan African skin tone to a European skin tone to finally in Northern Scandinavia, the people who at the time anyway were called the Laps, or now we call them the Sami, I think. Of course, we have to remember Buffon was deriving all humans as originating near the Caspian Sea. He was one of those Caucasian promoter guys. Hmm. And he was of the opinion that human form in its greatest perfection, that's his term, were the people who lived between the 40th and the 50th degree latitude. So that's basically Madrid to Brussels, where he <laughs> lived. right? And he specifically cut it off at the 50th because he was a rival of Linnaeus and Linnaeus <laughs> lives north of the 50th. So this is Buffon putting his finger in the eye of his rival. That's Linnaeus. also south of London. That's, That's true. <laughs> That's true. You get rid of the British too. Yeah, get rid <laughs> so of the Brits. It's a win-win for Buffon. <laughs> but but meanwhile, John Hunter also thought his color categories. He he proposed those seven. He thought they were yeah. related to the environment too. Yeah. Right. He said That's the true. sun and the air acted as an irritant to the skin, causing pigment to like pile up and sort of coagulate, I guess, deep in the skin of people who lived in hotter places. Like not exactly a suntan, but something more permanent. Yeah. Yeah. So if we look at the people from the 17th and 18th century, everybody's considering some sort of a combination of heat or soil or even more generally the air or the climate. And then of course, people are also arguing that lifestyles somehow cause skin color difference. I mean, look, nobody's really sure what's going on here. But they do seem to converge around this idea that in opposition to the Noachine curse, that it's the environment which is causing the range of skin colors that we see spread around the world. And, and ooh, I've been waiting for this moment. Are you guys ready for some good puns? Okay, why? Because good old Immanuel Kant is going to show up here. Uh, I can't get over him. I can't believe you brought him up. <laughs> Remember all the good Kant jokes we made in that other Enlightenment episode where we talked they, about him? You have a fun view good. of good. They yeah. were not good. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. You're you're right though, Joe. I mean, Kant is super important. We can't get away <laughs> with an episode without speaking of him. And he had his own theories in his anthropology. I like to remind my students that we think of Kant as a philosopher, but he wrote anthropologies before mm-hmm. he ever wrote anything about pure or practical reason. Anyway, so 
Kant does propose a mechanism. It's totally wrong, but he at least proposes one that brings together what we've been referring to as sort of internalist anatomical explanations and these externalist or environmentalist explanations that were both in play around the time. I mean, for example, an internalist explanation would be this Noah's curse stuff. The externalist stuff would be the environmental stuff, the food stuff, those sorts of causes. Hmm. So Kant thinks that this substance, this imponderable fluid is what they called it at the time, called phlogiston. Now, phlogiston is responsible for skin color, but other philosophers of the time were using phlogiston to talk about combustion and where heat comes from. It's the substance phlogiston, which has no weight, by the way. Hmm. So it also is supposed to, in Kant's model, make blood turn black. So what African skin can do is it can remove this phlogiston from the blood. And Kant likes this explanation, not only because it describes the darkness of the skin of people in Africa, but also the smell of black people, which is where we border on offensiveness when it comes to Kant. So he says that black people have to process things this way because, quote, they live in regions in which the air is so phlogistized, <laughs> so full of phlogiston, in consequence of thick woods and areas overgrown with swamps, clearly spoken by somebody who's never left his hometown yeah. on the, the borders of the Baltic Sea, in consequence of thick woods and, and overgrown swamps and stuff like that. So their bodies must work harder to remove the substance of phlogiston from the blood. So there's Kant. I can't talk anymore about him because he's wrong. Oof, yeah, <laughs> And also really you. racist. And really racist, yeah. There's a contemporary of Kant, Samuel Stanhope Smith, oh, yeah. who also was writing about skin color. He, in fact, put out a very si uh, significant volume talking about the way that humans were adapting to environments and the differences that were occurring between different groups. By way of placing him in history, he was to shortly afterward become the president of the College of New Jersey, hmm. which we now call Princeton. Yeah. He was arguing for an environmental cause of skin color. This is part of his program of monogenism when the debate between whether we were one species or multiple species mm -hmm. was still very active. And he argued that skin color was caused by the sun, by the heat, by bile and stagnant water all coming together to create different skin colors in different groups. And heat producing dark skin colors and lack of heat producing light skin colors, mm. which again falls apart when you get to the far north, like right. some of the other folks have worked yeah. on. Mm. He was trying to bring this environmental explanation for differences, not an internalist, but rather an external explanation of the differences in skin color between different groups. And he was one of the strong influencers of the 19th century. It's worth mentioning, though, that not everyone was on board with this environmental explanation. Do you remember back in our first episode on race and health, we talked about this American physician, Benjamin Rush? Of course. Oh, yeah. He's the guy who thought the leprosy was the cause of darker <laughs> skin color. There you go. And so his thing was, OK, if leprosy is cured or if we partially cure it, then light skin will begin to show up and mm. predominate on the body. And so leprosy causes darker skin, right? So yeah. he's not looking here to environment, but rather to disease as the mm. supposed cause of skin color difference. So my point is, it's not like Smith and Kant's work totally eliminated other ideas about how skin color was going on in this time. But 
rather we've still got this kind of messy muddle of environmental speculation. We've got disease mechanisms going on here. We've got these more internal explanations, you know. Totally. It's a mess. And it continues on through the 19th century. And that's why I get to now talk about somebody who I love talking about, Josiah Clark Knott, again, <laughs> again. from Mobile, Alabama, Ooh. right? But he's so important because he really becomes the summarizer of a lot of this information. So just as a reminder to listener, Josiah Clark Knott from Mobile, Alabama, is also this major polygenist supporter of the multi-origins theory in part to underwrite uh, the, the okayness of slavery. And then in the 1850s is one of the main authors of the book Types of Mankind. Hmm. So weirdly, what Knott was trying to do was attack the Noachian curse idea as an explanation for Black skin color but <laughs> but he also ridicules the idea that degrees of latitude or temperature were causing different adaptive colorization so essentially what Knott's explanation of the distribution of skin colors was that every single race was supposed to be a separate species with a separate color best suited to live in a separate environment Separate, separate, separate. Emphasis separate. on the separate. Exactly. And that, it becomes one of the key dominant even explanations in 19th century America, especially the closer that we get to the Civil War. And then finally, that takes us up to Charles Darwin. There you go. We have to mention him too. <laughs> yes, of course. Who in his 1871 work, The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, entertains the arguments of many people about natural selection accounting for skin color differences in humans. And interestingly enough, this father of the theory of natural selection dismisses all of those as valid arguments for skin color. Wait, wait, wait. So you're saying Darwin, the natural selection dude, doesn't think natural selection is responsible for skin color differences, right? Mm. That, that makes no sense. Why not? He says he doesn't think so because the distribution of the variously colored races, most of whom have long inhabited their present homes, does not coincide with corresponding differences of climate. Mm -hmm. Instead, what he says is that the differences in skin color must be the result of sexual selection. And to this day, there are still scholars who adhere to the sexual selection explanation of the distribution of skin colors. I'm glad that you brought up Darwin. As much as I, I really do like reading Darwin and I kind of have an affinity for Darwin, I think it's really, really important to underscore that Darwin didn't solve skin color yeah. debate. I feel yeah. like, not to blame anthropologists, but I feel like people who laud Darwin in biology and anthropology often assume that whatever he worked on, he sort of, he fixes the thing, right? He comes up with the one explanation that fixes everything. We still have people advocating the notion that color came from internal factors. We still have people believing that it was external, it would come from the sun or some other factor. Some people even believe that Darwin's psychological explanation that female choice over uncountable generations was the thing that created differences in skin color. All three of those explanations could be advocated for by the time we get to the end of the 19th century. Mm. So it wasn't solved. Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, Darwin at least brings us up to the 20th century chronologically. So there we go. We've, Yay, history. We've been yes. through like several millennia of knowledge, guys, or, or at least yep. 
if not knowledge, at least speculation about skin color and how it works and why it looks different around the world. But I got to say, I'm not sure I see much consensus emerging here. So where are we now, now that we're into the 20th century? In the dark. Um, Uh, Okay, sorry, sorry. But seriously, as more naturalistic science-based explanations for skin color began to be sought in the early 20th century, researchers started focusing on what was becoming an emerging link among physicians and and, uh, clinicians between sunlight and vitamin D. And so that was being used to construct the just-so stories about the distribution (laughs) of skin color. (laughs) This link was verified by experimentally showing that not only could they use ultraviolet light as a cure for rickets in hospital settings, ultraviolet Mm. light bulbs, but also sunlight could be used as a therapy for rickets. And so it was proven then that sun could actually prevent and cure the vitamin D deficiency disease that causes the malformation of the skeleton. Hmm. Oh, now I get it in the dark. <laughs> that was a pun <laughs> like, because of light. I get it. <laughs> all, right, all right. All right. So these guys are seeing that UV light helps with rickets and they say, okay, hmm. so exposure to UV must be key for preventing rickets and It's true that we humans produce vitamin D in our skin when it's exposed to the sun, specifically to ultraviolet radiation, which is why everybody I know in the Pacific Northwest, including myself, is vitamin D deficient because we don't get enough sun here to keep up our body's vitamin D needs. In 1934, in the American Anthropologist, the physician Murray was the first one to make the leap from UV helping rickets to try and turn this into a just-so story about how different human skin colors evolved. He introduced the notion that people have lighter skin at higher latitudes to aid in vitamin D synthesis, since the lack of vitamin D was what was causing rickets in the first place. Mm. It was his idea that people whose ancestors have lived a long time very far from the equator lost their darker skin pigmentation because melanin the skin pigment, absorbs ultraviolet light. But for those lower ultraviolet environments further from the equator, you need lighter skin, less melanin, to let enough ultraviolet radiation through to produce the vitamin D that you, Joe, and all your sickly Pacific Northwest (laughs) compatriots need. Okay, okay. But what about, I mean, that sounds logical, but we also know that there are some groups of people who live really far from the equator and have darker skin, like for instance, some Inuit groups. So what about them? That's right. And Murray even accounted for that. Unlike many people, Hmm. he proposed that Inuits, although he used the much more problematic term Eskimos in his 1934 publication, Hmm. retained darker skin because they got so much vitamin D from their fish-heavy diets that Hmm. they didn't need to completely depigment to get enough vitamin D from ultraviolet radiation. Uh, okay. This is one of those substances that we can take in our diet or we can manufacture in our skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Also cool. And also intellectually, that makes sense to me. But what about like the question of why people started off with darker skin in the tropics in the first place? I mean, didn't Murray have anything to say about that? Because I think last I heard in this episode, we were still wrestling with those mythological explanations like Phaethon or or Noah or whatever to explain why there was darker skin. So we've got this explanation for lighter skin, but what about the explanation for darker skin? Yeah. What's his origin story? 
th- th- this is a problematic one. Murray's explanation for that was perhaps, in my view, one of the most inventive ones that we see in the 20th century. He refers it to the condition known as tropical neurasthenia. And what he's saying here is that white people in the tropics get too much ultraviolet light. And he thinks that this would damage their nervous and reproductive systems. And this would then prevent them from surviving well in tropical areas. And only the darker skinned people would be able to live and reproduce. And But it's a natural selection argument. That's That's kind of interesting. Yeah, so he's saying that like white people would die out because of tropical neurasthenia. Uh, spoiler, huh. it's not right, but it is an interesting <laughs> one. Huh. Other than the skin color vitamin D link, which we still use very heavily in anthropology to explain skin color, in my opinion, the most significant development of the 20th century was the global skin color map published by the Italian geographer Renato Biasuti in 1940. Hmm. That same map has been used ever since. And I'm talking about, I guarantee I can find peer-reviewed publications this year that use that map. It's been used ever since throughout to describe the geographic distribution of skin color. Wow. So we're we're still right now in the 21st century using skin color maps based in the 1940s? Yeah, I have to hear about how this happened. Okay, well, it, it starts with some skin color tiles, the Von Lucian tiles. Oh, yeah. And those were a set of 36 somewhat standardized opaque glass tiles arranged in a chromatic scale. Yeah, I've actually seen these before. And when I've talked to students about them, they're like, oh, yeah, those are like the uh, like the skin tone matching swatches that you would get uh, at a makeup store if you were trying to match your foundation. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's actually a pretty good allegory. So. Huh. So the idea is you, you're supposed to put these tiles up against some part of the skin of a person to assess their skin tone and assign them one of the 36 colors. And my guess is that Von Lucian's doing something with these to try to find like a real number of races. Is he not? Yeah, that's a good call. Actually, Felix Von Lucian was a Viennese physician and an ethnographer and even an archaeologist for a while. He studied craniometry in the middle of the 19th century. This, he was a skull measurer. Hmm. Eventually, he became the director of the Africa and Oceania section in the Berlin Ethnological Museum. But in the 20th century, he was also a founding member of the German Society for Racial Hygiene. Oh, God. Bum, bum, bum. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But the funny thing is, he actually quit the society because it was getting too racist for him. Wow. <laughs> So Von Lucian comes up with this 36 shade chromatic scale for skin early in the 20th century, in part because he, like very many of his contemporaries, was convinced that even that designation of white was still several different races. We see this in in William Ripley's division of things into division, yeah. Yeah, Alpine and Nordic and Mediterranean. Yeah. In fact, Von Lucian thought that his scale could be broken down into six racial types. The first four were whites. So Celts had the lightest skin on his scale. And then you get Nordics and then you get Alpines and then you get Mediterranean Europeans. And then underneath them, and yes, underneath in his, in his scaling, yeah. it was then browns and then blacks. It, you're right, which sounds very familiar by this point, right? Yeah, I exactly. Should, I should stop being surprised that really old ideas keep being recycled and the stuff that we feel like is new. Right. 
Yeah, but but Joe, he's giving you numbers, so it's <laughs> sciency, okay? Ooh, okay. Ooh, numbers. <laughs> so this scale then was picked up by Renato Biasuti in the book Lorazzi e Popoli della Terra, which is races wow. and peoples of the earth. He divided von Lucian's colors into eight uneven splits of the 36 tiles. Then he mapped out the distribution of those eight groups of skin tones in support of his five subspecies. 16 primary races and 52 secondary races. Jeez. And frankly, even that's not that new. Yeah. I mean, the, the Bristol, England physician and ethnographer and sometime archaeologist named John Beto, he did this same thing for Britain and for just the continent of Europe all the way back in the 1880s. <laughs> they like keep I recycling said, these pattern, ideas. Right. right. Biasuti made a much more complex model out of this based on the 52 ethnographic descriptions of skin color that were spread across the globe. Whoa. But let's point out some of the problems. First, the Von Lucian tiles themselves. Hmm. Eric, what's the problem with making a chromograph out of glass tiles? Um, it's ugly. <laughs> Actually, they're kind of pretty. Well, I've seen them. They are, yeah. Maybe it's like, are, are they fragile? Or maybe they're too expensive to produce or something like that? The best versions would be expensive, but but the color fades over time because it's mm. on this colored glass and it literally changes color. And mm. you're supposed to be using this standard. Yeah, then that means that there's no consistency in the sampling at all. Yeah. And, and the second problem is that Biasuti drew these measurements from published ethnographies that included some indication of skin tone but there was no attempt to standardize wow. either the side of me measurement or the way that the ethnographer perceived a, a particular tile as how it matched up with a particular skin color. Uh, frankly, I'm kind of surprised that he was even able to find ethnographies with skin color measurements from all over the surface of the globe. That would have well, been a huge undertaking. It would have been, and of course he didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, he drew his data from these 52 ethnographic descriptions, uh, which is where his 52 secondary races comes oh, from. Oh, okay. And they were very unevenly distributed. For example, Europe and Africa are represented in his sample by 15 groups, 14 of which are spread throughout Africa, and Europe is represented by a single sample from Poland. What? Now- Stop for a second and think about this. He shows six different levels of color from Alaska all the way to Yemen. Alaska huh. to Yemen, okay? Huh. Six different levels of color. The only group sampled within that area is in Warsaw. That's so weird. Okay, yeah, I don't get this. So how, how is this helping us figure out the racial map of the globe? Well, he, he pretty much made up large areas and just, you know, Based on his preconceptions, he colored in the globe in different ways. But he was at least trying to put some data points on the map. Hmm. Only five years after he published that, a geographer drew black and yellow skin color maps without even pretending that he had any data points to base them on. See, this is that, that old canard. Like, don't let a good theory be ruined by something like facts or yeah. missing facts, right? <laughs> right. Okay, so BSUD is just kind of making up a good portion of this global map showing supposedly the distribution of skin color. But this is also the era where we begin to see kind of 
truly modern physical anthropology developing, right? And I think reflectance spectrophotometry became a thing sometime in the 1960s. So BSUD's map should have gotten dropped soon thereafter, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Wait, pause, pause. What is reflectance spectrophotometry? I don't know what that is. It's long story short, basically a way of a little using a little tool to get a precise measure of the amount of light that gets reflected from the skin. And the idea is, you know, the darker the skin, the less light gets reflected. So it's, you know, okay. intended to be an objective measure of how much light is reflected off the skin and therefore of the color of the skin. And when did this start? The machines were developed and by the end of the 50s, they were available for field work. Hmm. Yeah. So you'd think that the Biasudi method would be challenged immediately, right? <laughs> but <laughs> oh. As we know from our discussions of racial science, instead of going away, the map actually becomes included in a very influential wow. textbook. Just when anthropology was experiencing exponential growth as a college major, this text by C. Loring Brace and Ashley Montague huh. modified Biasuti's map and used, really? it, used it in their 1965 Introduction to Physical Anthropology. They redrew his map from the 1959 third edition of his text, collapsing his skin color eight categories into five tones. Oh. Oh. But of course, not directly related to races because both Brace and Montague endorse a cultural view of race. Weird. Unfortunately. That's still five. That's I know. that number. <laughs> It, it actually it makes sense if you look at, when you look at the graphic that accompanies this episode because you'll see that Biasudi did make a five part division very easy to do with the eight uh. eight pieces that he puts together. The unfortunate thing is that ever since Brace and Montague's text, some version of that map has appeared in almost every anthropology text that says anything about human variation. That's crazy when you it feel is. back the origins of that map. Right. I know. right. It's a little glass squares. <laughs> little glass squares that fade oh. in the light. Oh. <laughs> um, and, you know, the sampling problem that Biasudi was dealing with and consequently the derivations of his map were dealing with kind of reminds me of what's still going on with the sort of direct-to-consumer genomics like 23andMe and Ancestry.com where we have, yeah. you know, only people <laughs> who are taking those tests represented highly or heavily represented in the reference categories. Yeah, that's a very, good, very yeah, much, a good yeah. callback to a former episode also. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Physical anthropology did change like you guys were pointing at. We're not completely stuck in the early 20th century. <laughs> okay. That's comforting. Yeah. Part yeah. of the effort to move physical anthropology away from the descriptive anatomical works about race and into evolutionary explanations was to try to understand skin color as an adaptive phenomenon. And in fact, that's what was done by Kuhn, Garn, and Birchall in their 1950 book on race, where they borrowed Murray's model of ultraviolet radiation and vitamin D as accounting for skin depigmentation. For those listeners who don't know, Carlton Kuhn, Stanley Garn, and Joseph Birdsell were all big-time physical anthropologists at this time. Mm. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, fortunately, they didn't buy the other part of Murray's argument about tropical neurasthenia, selecting <laughs> right. for dark skin in the yeah. tropics. But even in the 1960s, people were still arguing about what was the selective factor for skin color. Hmm. For example, the South African physician Wasserman claimed that it wasn't the climate, the heat, 
sun or ultraviolet rays, hmm. but it was disease that differed from one area to another no that counted for skin color. Yes, disease. It's yeah. like the leprosy guy, Benjamin Rush. <laughs> right Physician to there. the presidents. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. That's basically the same argument as Rush. Almost 200, 200 years. Yeah. yeah. 200 it, years. It took a very influential article in the journal Science in 1967 to really force the ultraviolet vitamin D skin color consensus that grew throughout the latter part of the 20th century. W. Farnsworth Loomis, a biochemist at Brandeis University, argued that most of the variability we see in skin color is due to the ultraviolet vitamin D relationship. Hmm. He borrowed, again, Murray's argument for the depigmentation in higher latitudes. In addition to that, Loomis added on a piece saying that heavily pigmented skin was required in the tropics to prevent the oversynthesis of vitamin D, which facilitates the absorption of calcium from the diet into the, into the blood. And if you have too much calcium, that can actually cause death from kidney failure. The so kidneys th th become calcified. This sounds... It, like a reasonable hypothesis, not being a biochemist or a physician. It, is it? <laughs> it, it truly does sound like a reasonable hypothesis. It doesn't, however, work. Oh, okay. Unfortunately. Okay. But we'll discuss that next time. It, oh, it wasn't okay. until 1978 that finally wow. somebody proposed the hypothesis of ultraviolet photolysis, which is the chemical breakdown by ultraviolet radiation of the B vitamin folate as a reason mm -hmm. to select for high levels of melanin pigmentation where we have a lot of ultraviolet radiation because a vi this folate deficiency can cause all kinds of reproductive problems. And so that's also an argument that has a number of issues, but that's probably the most popular argument uh, to date. But that can comes out finally in 1978. Okay, okay, so I, I want to get into this in part because it answers the question I asked earlier about like, okay, what are the what are the plausible arguments we have for why skin color stays darker in the tropics, since we have mm. these plausible arguments for why skin color is lighter farther from the tropics. But here's the thing, we're, we're talking the last quarter of the 20th century now, and I haven't even yeah. heard either one of you mention genetics yet at all. So it's true. Like, did genetics sort of solve some of that environmental versus internal debate that was going on in the 19th century around skin color causes mm. in favor of those who were doing the sort of like, well, there's internal reasons for this. You would think so, right? To, yeah. to, to give a historian's answer, that's complicated. <laughs> Good job. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the history of genetics just is complicated, but... Guys, I think that that is way too big to try to bite off in this particular episode. Can we save that? I agree. Let's let's come back next time and pick up the story from this internalist side of things dealing with genetics. And I think that means that we can start next episode with a eugenicist. Wah, ha, 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 ha. That, I believe, is called a cliffhanger, folks. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, I am Joe, the cultural anthropologist. I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. And I'm Eric, the historian of science. And you've been listening to Speaking of Race. Find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.